Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, episode 54. Rob here. On this episode, we move to the middle chapter of the rebooted Planet of the Apes series as we do our mega series of the nine theatrical Planet of the Apes films. On this episode, Jason from Binge Movies joins us to talk about 2014's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Leave us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation on 2014's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I know why you're scared. It took us four years fighting that virus, but we are survivors. It was a virus created by scientists in a lab. You can't blame the apes. Who the hell else am I going to blame? We need to give them a chance. Welcome to animals. Please. I've seen things. I've seen the way they are. They want what we want, to survive. Caesar, home. This is your home. Your home. Are you aware they are going to turn on you? They don't want a war. No, don't shoot! Caesar, you have to go. Go where? Apes! Together! Strong! War, it's not what you want. There must be another way. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're closing in on the finale of our Planet of the Apes mega series with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes from 2014, uh, the second of the reboot trilogy, starring Andy Serkis as Caesar, of course. And I'm honored to welcome to the show Jason from Binge Movies. Welcome. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So this is this mega series. I think I had in the works for a while, and I had reached out to you. I think like a year before we actually are recording this, something like that, being like, "Hey, eventually I'm going to do those." Uh, and then, of course, it got pushed. So you've been the 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 one person kind of on the docket for this long before I secured any other guests. So I I appreciate your patience and continued interest in the, talking about this movie. I mean, I've just been doing that to you for years at this point, of scheduling <laughs> you about a year out. So, that's true. Yeah, it's just, you know, turnabout's fair play, my friend. Uh, yeah, that's true. So tell people who, for some reason, aren't listening to Binge Movies uh, about your show and, and everything you guys do over there. <laughs> everything we do. We do too much. Uh, it's a 
podcast for movie maximalists, I think is the best way to put it. So if you tend to watch too many movies, think too much about the movies that you've watched, overthink in general in your life, um, and you like really weird, strange stuff, uh, then I think the show is for you. It's not a very good sell, but what I have found <laughs> is binge movies comes to you when when you're ready for it in your life. It's not the store appears uh, at, at the corner of the weird street as you're crossing the intersection and you look to the left and you're like, I never noticed that store before. And then you're in. Has that always been there? Yeah. Yeah. Has that always been there? And it's like, no, and it may not be there in a split second, but in that second you see it as those vibrations flux, that's your chance to open the door. And when you open the door and you go in and you feel right at home, you're like, this place is weird and spooky and gooey, but there's something kind of magical about it. Then, you know, you've come home Then you know that you are, uh, you found the right place. So that's how I describe the podcast. Yeah. No, I, um, one thing I love about your show is the variety of films that you cover, like you, that you do the big blockbusters, but then you do like the weird cult movie stuff that uh, no one else is really talking about. And I think that's, that's one of the coolest things about your show is that all movies are welcome pretty much. Yeah, for sure. And and you've been on to talk about a, I think a pretty wide selection of movies. Yeah. And that's, that's always the goal, right? For the, for binge movies is there's no caveat on there. There's no asterisks. We're covering the full gamut of film history. Everything from, like you said, the top tier, uh, you know, high end art films to classic Hollywood to, yeah, some really weird, obscure stuff that's not getting talked about. And we never go into it with the, we, we, you know, uh, we have done the Police Academy series. And I think that's a great <laughs> example because on paper, you'd say, okay, we're going to do the Police Academy movies and we're going to dunk on them. And I'm not going to lie to you, that did happen <laughs> uh, at certain points that did happen, but that's never the goal. So the goal is not to be a podcast where we dunk on movies. Right. The goal is to be a podcast where we try to give an honest appraisal as best we can. And I couldn't do it without all of the wonderful guests that I've had. I've been very fortunate to have a lot of really great guests, filmmakers, film critics, film thinkers, film podcasters, and, and reviewers like yourself who come on and are very generous with their time. Let's be honest, their money. And they watch a bunch of movies and they come on and talk to, to me about it, you know, and that's that's wonderful. And um, I think those conversations are are fun and interesting and different. And um, as you know from what you're doing here, that's what attracts people. You know, the movies are the thing that gets them in the door, but what keeps them there is the engagement with the conversation and the and the personalities of the people who are talking. And um you know, I'm, I'm sure you are experiencing that here because it's like, yeah, I love Planet of the Apes or I don't love Planet of the Apes. I've only seen a couple of them. But this Robert Yanez Jr., I like the sound of his voice. I like his personality. I like he's sort of like really soothing in a way. And then he has all these great guests on. So, you know, same thing. Same, same. I think it's I think people who don't have a podcast also maybe don't realize that that's at least for me, that's part of what keeps us in it as well. Are those conversations with those guests? Like to, for me, I, I would be talking about movies regardless. So I might as well throw a mic on and use it as a reason to connect with like-minded people to just spend an hour bonding over talking about Ninja Turtles or Planet of the Apes or whatever the, the film may be. So it's, I think it's a big part for us as well. Like people come on and listen 
people come to the show and listen for the guests, but it's like we also get excited about it because we get the chance to talk to those people. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So all the stuff you've talked about on Binge Movies, have you ever discussed Planet of the Apes? I think I know you've done the 2001 film. Uh, oh yeah, uh, that one well, has come on. <laughs> I was about to say no, and then you reminded me. I, yes, I think I that's the I only know. one, really. Yeah, that's that's the only one thus far. Yes. Yep. So, what what was your what's your introduction to this franchise? This is kind of runs the gamut. A, a little bit of what you were saying, like the big blockbusters, the weird stuff, the stuff no one talks about. This franchise kind of encompasses <laughs> all of that in varying points. So, oh, what was got- your what was Legacy, your first one? sequel quasi reboot quasi prequel um and then yeah stuff that just like went straight to the drive-in it seems like um <laughs> my experience with planet of the apes is is probably similar to i would guess yours we're similar in age which mm-hmm. is like they kind of very frequently in the, in the united states they would show a lot of the goofier ones on television they were just always on tv and I can't remember what cable network, but there was there was a cable network throughout the '90s that would have like annual or you know a uh, couple times a year would do like a Planet of the Apes marathon. And very frequently, you know, it would be like Battle Under the Moon of the Stars of Planet of the Apes. It would, you know, it wouldn't be the Charlton Heston original. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty apes! It would be the, probably the cheaper ones. So these movies were just always on heavy rotation. And uh, one of the things that I'm kind of, you know, when you get older, you, you kind of start to obsess like Steven Spielberg about the world that made you. And instead of thinking about bridges and spies, I think about pro c- cable programming. And I go, <laughs> you know, because um, there's all of these, the world is, was such a different place, Robert, when we were growing Absolutely. up. And we're not even really old. Like, I don't want to talk like we're old men because we're not, but it's, been so transformative at like hyperspeed because of the rate of technology and information is moving faster and faster and faster seemingly every year. And, um, and, and we're bifurcating and fracturing as, as a society because of that, because we're all in our own little individualized curated experiences entertainment wise. And not too long ago, the world really wasn't like that. We all, you know, going to the movies was a very casual experience. Watching movies was a very casual experience um, you didn't have access to everything everywhere all at once. No pun intended. <laughs> you, you know, you didn't have a multiverse of movies to watch. You had whatever somebody was handing you. Right. Yeah. And if it was on TNT and you and I are watching TNT on the same rainy day in 1994 at 4 PM Eastern, four Oh five Eastern, if it's TNT. Um, and they were, had, were running plan of the apes or the sci-fi channel or anywhere else. Um, we watched that same movie and that was, and it wasn't just us. It was um, tens of millions of people right now, now on television, like traditional TV, non-streaming TV in the United States, you're lucky if your show, I mean like the top, top, top tier shows on non-streaming television are lucky if they crack like 8 million people, 5 million people, 4 million people. You know, there are shows that are like, it won the night. It's number one. And it got like 1.7 million people watched it. You know, and it's number one in its time slot and number one in its demos. You know, it's like 1.7 million. Like that. Like <laughs> that's there are bigger YouTube channels. You know what I, I mean? was going to say? Hot ones <laughs> pulls in bigger numbers than that, right? So the the landscape's completely changed. So we're all being shaped out of synchronicity with each other and at different times. And that kind of stuff 
uh, I think about all the time because what that meant was even if I could not directly recall other than the thing that had been parodied on the Simpsons that I saw in syndication 50 million times, even if I couldn't directly recall anything substantial of the original ape series, I knew it by osmosis. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. So, because I was just, I was a channel flicker. I was a, you know, the, the old term I used to use is I was a channel surfer. I would just constantly be flicking through channels, never really landing on anything. And that's how my brain has then since been wired and probably why I binge movies is the way it is. But, uh, <laughs> so like, that's it. I've picked up the, the ape series by osmosis because greedy corporate hacks who programmed cable networks got them on the cheap. That was a long ass way, long winded <laughs> way of saying that. So what was the, when, when did you, did you actually watch the 2001 uh, reboot when reimagining whatever, when it came out, was that like your first, like, I, I guess I had to assume that your first theatrical experience with these movies, right? What did I tell you at the time? Were you on that episode? No, you weren't. You I was not. I was the one after that. We had a much, much better, <laughs> yeah. much better crop yeah, yeah. of movies to talk no, about. Oh, yeah. That was Brad from the cinema guy. Shout out to Brad. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, what was your question? <laughs> 2001 Apes. Yeah. Is that your first oh. theatrical experience? And like, I guess, more formal I, introduction into no, this, this franchise. No, my no, first theatrical experience with the Apes franchise is this movie. Oh, really? Not even Rise? No, no. Okay. I, I saw that on, I think, good old Redbox. I saw Rise, and I'm pretty sure it's, I'm pretty sure I just saw um, Burton's Planet of the Apes, the Wahlberg one, just on cable. I don't yeah. even think I, I don't even think I rented it, you know? And if my <laughs> parents rented it, I don't know, it was a weird age because I was kind of getting older by then. So I really wasn't watching right. the same thing my parents were at that time. So, uh, but yeah, I think I just saw it in bits and pieces on cable and, and it may be the first time I saw it truly minute for minute, beat for beat all the way through was for when I did it for the show earlier this year. Wow. Yep. So, so that being the case, what was your, what were your expectations going into this one? Because I think this is one of those cases of a sequel being, pretty clearly a, a, an artistic step up, uh, not only just technologically, just narratively as well. What, what were you expecting going into this film before we kind of start digging into it? Uh, you just, you just led your witness. You just told me what I'm supposed to think about it, but it just so happens that I agree with you because here's the thing. I like rise and I revisited it not that right. long ago. I introduced it to somebody else and I, I liked it. I think it's an, I think it's a, a, a good movie for what it is. And it, it, I think it has some real flashes of a lot of the stuff that is in the subsequent films, um, the being Dawn and being war. And I am of the agreement that Dawn should have been the first one. This should have been rise. And then the last one yeah. should have been war, but, or maybe even something else, maybe the, the, the next one we're getting, which is kingdom. Maybe that should have been war. And the third one should have been something else. Cause I, I think, it, yeah, the, t the titles are definitely wrong, but yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement. I saw it. I saw the I saw Rise on video uh, DVD, and you know, look, if somebody back in t 2010s is like when we were, we were getting onslaughted, not that we're not now, but we was it seemed like anything that your older brother ever even once saw in a magazine was being rebooted. And it was like, oh my gosh, it was just everything was getting a legacy, a reboot and a hard reboot most of the time at that point, right? So you're getting, mm -hmm. you're getting Clash of the Titans, you're getting Wrath of Titans, you're getting, you know, all of these things that it's like, man, I've already like RoboCop and Total Recall and you're just, we're just being 
point break, you know, <laughs> Ben Hur. We were just getting beat into the ground with these these remakes, and so it's like they're going to do a prequel remake starring a Franco and a CGI ape, all CGI apes now, primates, no people in suits, and certainly no real ones. And it's going to be about like dementia and John Lithgow. It's like, that's a recipe for disaster. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is, you give me that pitch. I'm like, we're not making that movie. Somehow, some way it came out better than it had any right to be. And, and a lot of that has to do with Andy Circus. A lot of that has to do with, I think there are some real, uh, emotional moments in there, uh, including with like Brian Cox, who's like the villain in the movie. And yeah. you know, there's actually like real talent there. And it's a really interesting story. And we need that story to get to this movie in a sense. Yes, I am in agreement with you. I think this is like an upgrade in every conceivable way. And to the point that it's almost, it feels almost like an entire reimagining because the color palette of this movie is different. And I get it's a different time. It's many years moved forward. It's post-apocalyptic. You know, it's it's not supposed to be reflective of our world. Um, we're past the simian flu, which how eerie is the opening of this movie, given what we've done I was in the last three years? 100%. It looks incredibly <laughs> familiar now. But it's so, it's almost 10 years ahead. Yeah. It's crazy, right? So it's like, you can't say we didn't know something like this could happen because we did, we had the protocols, you know, and you could do a very realistic opening montage of how it would go. Um, uh, and so, yeah, now having lived through it, I, I think it gives the movie even now greater credibility, you know? So at least yeah. in my neighborhood post, I don't know if it was Moderna, but definitely post Pfizer. I definitely saw more chimpanzees on horses. Oh yeah. Good chimpanzee on a horse. They never, you know, can't, can't ever pass that up. No, their but little, it, it, their little legs always look completely normal on a horse. Yes, of course. It's just <laughs> an ape in its natural ha- habitat yeah, on the back, on the of, back a horse, of a horse, yeah. carrying a gun, like you know, yeah, like they yeah. do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, exactly. It's exactly what you're saying, though. It's like Rise came out of nowhere. I think the expectations for that were basically in the toilet after the the Burton movie. So like, that's who one who's begging that's for one, a Planet of the Apes it, movie, right? It is it is exactly and this is a trilogy that this is kind of getting compared to in a, in a lot of ways and I think it, it's uh, aptly so. It's it's essentially Batman Begins to Yeah, yes, uh, to so. following Batman and Robin you get to Batman Begins, you know, you know, we could take this stuff seriously. Let's just start it over and answer a lot of questions. Of like, yep, how yep. would this, how would this really work in today's world? And then by comparison, this is the dark night that we're, yes. we're, we're living in it. It's feels, everything feels darker and grimmer and, and uh, more emotionally intense and heightened. And uh, yeah, it's, and a lot of that here is also the change in director too, because we're going from, uh, what is it, Rupert Rupert Sanders? I think to um, to Colonel Matt Sanders, Reeves, whatever. Yeah, to Matt Reeves, <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever his name is. I'm gonna I'm gonna double check because now you're calling me out. <laughs> what was the uh, Rupert Wyatt? Hey, Rupert Sanders is a different guy. I always get those two I, confused. If, 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 honestly, if you told me the guy who directed this was Guy Evans, I would be like, yeah, or sounds guy right. Incognito, sure, yeah, yeah. But yeah, this is definitely Matt Reeves. We're in Matt Reeves territory. So you and, say that, but what yeah. what is that? What does that mean when you say this is definitely Matt Reeves? Because before this, he did uh, the Paul Bearer with uh, David Schwimmer that nobody saw. Yeah, Cloverfield and Let Me In, and then and then this, and obviously you know more. Yeah, let let Me In. If I boy, if now you you can check me on this. Isn't Let Me In a remake of Let the Right One In? Isn't sure is. American? Yep. Okay. 
Um, so I've seen Let Me In. Don't remember anything about it because it's pretty similar to Let the Right One In from what I remember. And I watched yep. like both of them around the same time. So I cannot, I, I can't, just, it's been a while. Um, and what did he do before that? You said Cloverfield, right? Cloverfield. Um, <coughs> I like Cloverfield. Um, I definitely liked it at the time. Um, he's the sort of guy that's going to make him. It's okay. It's a found footage kaiju movie. And you're like found footage, uh, kaiju really. But, and, 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 and the whole entire marketing campaign is going to be a JJ Abrams mystery box ARG. And you're like, Oh, but trust me, I was friends with all those people on MySpace, and I was look reading their little blogs and everything on there. And I was wrapped up into the hype of it. That's before I realized that JJ Abrams does this, this stuff and has no plan for a satisfying payoff. Yeah. I was the, the internet was still new and it felt fun and fresh. And I didn't realize it was just soulless marketing. We, we were all so innocent back. So then. innocent. Yeah. So gullible. <laughs> uh, and so I was swindled of my time and energy just to have it never, no expanded universe ever be created with it. They, although I do like 10 Cloverfield lane, it's clearly so not I. a Cloverfield movie. Um, the last cl- Cloverfield battle station or whatever the hell that was, that was garbage. <laughs> that was garbage. Yeah. And then at the end, Matt Reeves just came out. I was like, yeah, he's alien. Like when they're on the Ferris wheel, that's the baby Kaiju or the Kaiju mama falling to earth. Like he just recently came out and was like, we're never making another one. Here's what the story was that we were going to slowly reveal. But now we're all onto bigger projects. Now I'm making Batman. I don't give a shit about Cloverfield anymore. <laughs> it's been almost 20 years. Um, and so it's like, it, it all just built up to like a, basically a tweet of somebody quoting Matt Reeves from an interview where he just sort of went, eh. but to <laughs> me, honestly, when, when, when I was like, what's a Matt Reeves movie, it's this movie. Mm. So this is the thing that just emblazoned him in my mind. And so when he was announced of like, they're going to do another Batman, I was like, Oh God, I, I like Batman, but like, give it a rest. Right. And they're like, but Matt Reeves is going to do it. And I was like, okay, all right, mate. Okay. I still don't give a shit about Batman at this point. I'm burned out, but I do give a shit about Matt Reeves. And I love, I love what he did. I think a lot of what he did in the Batman is like really transcendent. I think there's some stuff in there that is truly transcendent. And having gone back and revisit the dark Knight not that long ago and revisit this for your show, this is going to sound really controversial. I think this movie is better than The Dark Knight. Ooh, that is kind of controversial. I feel like I don't this think movie- there's a performance. In it. I see. Here's the thing, though. Yeah, Andy Circus, man, holy yeah. moly! I know Caesar is. I granted this is a second movie, and so he, we've. You're right. We've gotten the origin story, but Andy Circus gives, I think, one of the great performances, and because it's mocap, and because he, he already kind of did it with Lord of the Rings. And like every like you would hear when these movies were coming out because like these movies are so weird, dude. This trilogy, they, they come yeah. out, they do good, but they don't do great, right? Like not they're not great box office, but they're like re- good, maybe really good box office. But there was never like this. We were never in that cultural moment of like we're all in the zeitgeist for the apes. It right. never happened. It just never happened. And then a bunch of people, a lot of people saw these movies and pretty much everybody that saw them were like, those are great films. And everybody else was like, yeah, but isn't it just about talking apes? And you're like, yeah, but it's really more like Shakespeare. It's really King Lear. This movie's like, like you're hitting so many of my notes Jason, (laughs) right now. I literally, no, no, it's good. That's great. It's awesome. I literally had Shakespearean tragedy like King Lear in my notes. It's a tragedy. 100%. 100%. And, and, and. One of the most complex protagonists, not good guys, but protagonists in the true sense of the word, is Caesar. 
you know? Yeah. And then obviously, okay. And like, we're a little bit on the nose by calling him Caesar. Right. But, but that's really what he is. He's the emperor of this new Republic that is being formed. And he has to choose between war or peace. And, and the, the, the war and peace is inside himself because he's really of neither world. He is in some way the creator of, he's the destructor in, in a way of the human race. Yeah. But he, but he is also someone who was raised by humanity and has deeply conflicted loving feelings towards humanity. But he's also seen the worst of humanity. And yet he's also seen the worst in himself and his own people. And so like, and that may all sound trite because, well, you could just reduce it down to, but it's a CGI chimpanzee. But right. what circus does physically, and all the performers here, what they do physically, including Toby Kebble, is you, and what the writing does, you, even if we, the CGI isn't completely passable after, you know, there is a little bit of Uncanny Valley, and now it's a little bit older, we're a little bit further down the road, and so it's it's aging a little bit, but the performance is so strong and the emotional narrative on, especially on the ape side is mm -hmm. so strong. You forget all of that. You know, you believe like when we last saw him, he was like, we, we saw him at the beginning of the other movie, like in diapers. Yeah. Now he's basically the actual Caesar of this ape Rome. He's got the heir apparent in uh, blue eyes or bright eyes, or whatever his name is. Blue eyes, I think. And blue eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's his son who's, like, struggling to live in the shadow of his father and <laughs> is so desperate to prove himself he's easily persuaded by those of nefarious purposes. And But even the villain of the movie, which on the ape side, I guess you would say, is Koba. Koba isn't wrong. No, he, Koba is... Completely Koba, justified. Koba is ape Magneto or yes. Killmonger or any of these big Marvel villains who are now, like... Who who are now considered you know among the best comic movie comic book movie villains of yes. all time, et cetera, because of that re very reason. You're like, well, based on his experiences, why should he? Why should he consider humans any less? You know, when you get he, that, that that exchange with him where yes. he's like, oh, they just need to finish their human work, and he's like pointing to this all the scars on him. Human, human work, work, human work. He's yes. like, come on, dude. Right. It's he, incredible. You're watching this ape who's been scarified, right? Yes. And he's like. You know, I know human work. This is human work. The, and the, the, the amount of pain and rage in that performance, when he's like thumping each scar, this is human work. And Caesar knows he's not wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, Caesar knows. And also, like, I truly think Maurice is one of my favorite characters, like side characters, supporting characters, mm -hmm. the, the orangutan. Yeah. The, just the simple scene between him and Jason Clark's son where he's reading the graphic novel to him mm -hmm. <laughs> and he gets the joke, you know, and they're laughing together. And the wisdom that he gives to Caesar as his dear, as his um, conciliary, as his um, that was right hand <laughs> orangutan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much wisdom where he's just like, because there's times where Caesar's really like, you know, oh, just that, that beautiful exchange they have about the lights towards the beginning of the movie where mm -hmm. he's asking Maurice, like, has any of the patrol, have they seen any people? And he's like, we haven't seen them in like two winters or whatever he says, you know, it's like we right. haven't seen them in two seasons. 
it's been a long time. They might not be, they, the last of them may have died off essentially. He's like, the lights are gone and like all this sort of stuff. And Caesar sort of, it's just such a, it's honestly such a nuanced, complicated performance because you see again on the CGI ape's face that he laments the fact he's partly relieved if all humans are dead, quite frankly, right? Because right. It, at least he can live in peace, but he's also really sad about that. He's deeply, he mourns it and grieves it and he's mad that he's grieving it, you know, and it's so complicated. And so between the special effects team, between the performers in the suits, between the, uh, the human performers who are working with people in mocap suits, between the, you know all the direction, the writing, I think this is honestly, truly one of the best movies of the 2010s is extremely masterfully made. And a, a film that I wish more people, like forget that it's a franchise, forget mm-hmm. that it's Planet of the Apes, which you might think is silly or stupid or goofy or dumb. Forget, forget it. Just give it a chance. I know maybe I'm jumping ahead of the end, but no, no, no. Just yeah. give the film a chance because if you accept it on its own terms, it's a kind of a slower moving, hum- like I say human in quote in quotation, um, interior world moral conflict drama. Even more so than it being a dystopian movie, or it has those elements, but I'm r- really grateful that Matt Reeves, I think we're asking what's like his distinctive. I think one of his distinctives is even when he's doing something we've seen before, he does it in a just slightly different original way that it doesn't feel like anything you've really, you, it's like it's, it's familiar, but it feels fresh at the same time. And we've seen so many dystopian movies. And even back then, we were getting out with a ton of dystopian films. And, you know, well, humans are the real monsters. And blah, 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 blah. But it's like he goes beyond that. And, yeah, the element is in there. But he goes beyond that because what he really makes it about is almost about nation states, right? Mm. It's, it's actually about how fear leads. A, it's, it's an it's a, it's a incisive look at fear and family and nation states and uh, polarization and hate and phobia and how all sides are desperate to flourish and to secure their flourishing. But our fears our our fear of other leads us to believe we have to destroy the other in order for us to flourish. And in so doing, we ensure our own destruction. That's yeah. what this silly ape movie is about. <laughs> exactly. No. And it's so, well-balanced on all sides. I like you were saying, like there's, that's, that's one of the things that struck me upon first watch and upon this rewatch is that there are well-intentioned parties on both sides. There are ill-intentioned parties on both sides. You see the moments of tenderness and beauty and love on both sides. And you see those moments of hate and rage uh, on both sides. And so it, it doesn't like, Malcolm and Caesar are sort of trying to advocate, trying to navigate this tenuous peace between the humans and the apes. This is the crossroads upon which everything functions. You know, like this moment is whether whether we end up in a world solely run by apes or whether the humans and the apes are able to find some way of coexisting. That That is this juncture of the story in this franchise. And these two... Yeah man and and ape are trying so desperately to keep that in line and it's just it's just human human nature 
ape ape nature. It's just, which is how it feeds into the original film is that the whole point of that original film, which I've already talked about for this podcast is Charlton Heston's Taylor. It's just like, ah, there's gotta be something better out there than man. People suck. And we're, we're doomed to our own destruction and spends most of the movie being like, well, I need these people need, you know, I need, uh, I need Nova. I need Zira. I need Cornelius. I need all these individuals to help me get out of this jam and find a way to live here only to discover, Oh no, you blew it up. You animals. (laughs) I was right the whole time. We suck. (laughs) Um, so it, it, it's, it feels true to the spirit of that original movie. But like you said, it, it, it highlights so much more of the nuance of that conversation and by bringing these two species at, at to, to the breaking point, essentially. And I love that it, 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 you went, you always wonder like, how do these things happen? How do societies reach that tipping point? It's like, cause all you need is one asshole with a gun to start shit off yeah, or one, right. one ape with a, with a, with a, with a vendetta. Yep. And watching Koba, in this movie, and like you said, Toby Kebbell is ex- extraordinary in this, as as I maybe the best villain of the franchise, uh, yes. be, because yes. he's the most understandable villain in the franchise. Because we uh, we we on in some ways are so almost almost on his side, except when he starts going like on a murderous rampage. The way that he manipulates Caesar from the inside, the way that he that scene yeah. with those two guys testing the weapons. Yeah. And he he gets caught by them and then sort of plays it off and then later returns uh, and turns the tables on them. That's just, that's just some genius level shit. It really is. And then the point where he goes, and we're going to dip in a spoiler. So if you haven't seen it, please go see it before we talk Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. The point of where he, you know, Rocket is this elderly ape grieving father, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, where Koba goes wrong is that Koba what Koba puts forth to people is that what he wants is justice and what he really wants is revenge. Because if it were justice, then there's room for mercy, first of all. And second of all, there's, it would really be about not just his pain, but the pain of others mm-hmm. and the suffering of others. Uh, he straight up kills his, his, any ape that doesn't fall in a line with him. Yeah. His pursuit of vengeance, his, his pursuit of what in his mind is what is just leads him to fascism. And he is a fascist leader. You know, he becomes like a dictator. And um, it's, what's funny about to- Toby Kebbell is that he's, you know, if you look at it like his um, IMDb, you know, it's like full of all of these like franchise bets since we're on franchise detours. Mm-hmm. And um, they're all wrong. Every single one of them is wrong. He's in Prince of Persia. We, and here, here's the thing at the, before you see those movies, if somebody says we're making a Prince of Persia movie, you're like, I can see that an adventure movie kind of in the early days of the superhero boom that we're still living in based on a known property, but it's not a, but it's not a, a comic book rather. Uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a, su- it's not a superhero story per se, but it's, you know, an action adventure movie that could be really fun. And uh, he usually plays bad guys. And he's in it, and that movie, last I saw it, was not very good. Uh, <laughs> at the very least, it wasn't a hit. Right. So that's a flop. Then he's like, okay, I'll do Wrath of the Titans. And that one's like, we're not making any more of these after that. <laughs> that one doesn't even do as good as Clash of the Titans. Then he's like, you know what? The, the comic book thing is really taken off. I'll be Doctor Doom. Disaster. An absolute disaster of a movie in the Fantastic yep. Four. And he's like, okay, that was a disaster. Let me do Warcraft. Let me go do another video game. Disaster. 
Let me do Ben Hur, which I think he does <laughs> after this, around the same time. A Ben Hur remake. Disaster. Then he does Kong Skull Island, more apes, more franchises. And that one's not a disaster, but I think a lot of people see it as a disappointment. Mm-hmm. And it certainly didn't set the world on fire. And then after that, he does Bloodshot with Vin Diesel. So this is a guy who's taken a lot of stabs at being in a viable franchise. And the only one that I think he actually got that he hit on is the one that probably on paper I would have said was the stupidest one, (laughs) which is the play of the apes. And it will never happen because it was all behind CGI and people don't even remember that it's him in this, this role, even though he's physically doing the acting. It's not just him in a booth making the grunt sounds. He's, he is the actor. Um, I think this is the best work of his career. I think he's incredible in this. It's uh, hard to, to to hold scenes uh, opposite Andy Circus when you're both doing mocap too, because Andy Circus is the master yes. of this thing. And the thing is, Kobo Koba is sympathetic, and then he's also terrifying, mm-hmm. and he's both, you know. And by it was like you, you feel sympathy for him, but by the end, you know that he must be stopped, and uh, that's really hard to navigate. That I, I I don't ever feel sympathy for the Joker, nor should I. But I don't ever go, boy, yeah, that Joker, I really see where he's coming from. That's actually the antithesis of, a, antithesis of his character is we should know where he's coming from. If you do, you're probably a psychopath. But it's like, <laughs> wow, this guy's pure chaos. But that's not what Koba is. He's not a comic book villain. He yeah. seems, he se- it truly seems like a character taken from, you know, ancient mythology or ancient, you know, classical literature. So He's also one of the elements of this movie that isn't in the other movies either, too. There's a lot of, in this rebooted uh, trilogy, there's a lot of little elements and little references and little Easter eggs and stuff from the original run of movies that they kind of pull from and remix and kind of do their own own way and and kind of put their unique spin on it. Koba is an an original addition. Which I think makes his, his makes his character perhaps even stronger. But yeah, it's that it's that breaking point late in the film where he's he tells Ash, "Oh, here you need to just kill this guy, kill yeah. this, t- you know, t- take him out." And he's like, "No, nah, I'm not going to do. It. Caesar wouldn't want to do this." And that's what that's what sets Koba off. <laughs> he's like, yep. "Caesar's gone. I'm in charge." Straight up, drags Ash to the end and just tosses him off the balcony to yep. his doom. I mean, that's some that's some cold shit. To the point yes, that you is. get later on where um, I think it's before that where he's on the tank, by the way. Speaking of Matt Reeves, the whole that that's an incredible shot that I remembered as well. Yeah. When he's on the tank and we're sort of following that turret through the battlefield. Uh, incredible stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Koba, Koba's amazing in this. I, I, I agree 100% on that. Um, and it also, I think, does a, an excellent job of justifying why... Caesar is the leader of this society. You know, not only do we get to see the ape society in sort of a, a nascent form, sort of early in its evolution to what we know it will be in the uh, in the earlier films, but we see not only why he is in charge. I feel like this is the 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 movie where he really earns that leadership position because it starts yeah. out obviously he's the you know he was the, the the most intelligent ape. He's the one that sort of freed the minds of the big, the, you know, the first of them in, in the, uh, in the first film by releasing that gas throughout the, um, I forget the place that they were all being held rocket Maurice and Coba where they all started in that, in the, uh, the previous film. 
So he's obviously, you know, has the best understanding of of the humans. We see that sort of throughout this film. He's there's a there's a fun moment that I hadn't noticed until this rewatch where they're going through the the subway and everybody's just climbing over the the um you know, they're climbing over the the bars and everything and and yep. Caesar's the only one that like walks right through the turnstile. He's like, "Oh, I know how this works." It's, yeah, right. <laughs> um he has an understanding of of humanity, uh but it also it starts with him hunting leading a hunting exposition and then by the end you know we open on his eyes we close on his eyes it's basically the lost approach if people have seen the show lost uh and there's such a different there's so much like weight and responsibility added onto his uh his expression by the end of the film that you really see the journey that he's been on where he's had to reassert his leadership position and we sort of understand he starts to understand how he needs to to lead his uh, his people, as it were, going forward, in that he can't the the rules that they were hoping to to go by the utopia he was trying to create is just isn't possible, and he has to deal with the realities now of that. And I think that's that watching that sort of degradation over the course of the film through the the shape of uh, apes do not kill ape by yeah. the end, where he has to sort of redefine exactly what that means. Is just really powerful, heavy stuff. Again, for a movie with a bunch of talking apes, that on paper it sounds like a bad idea. I think it's incredible that it's able to, to, like you said, to uh, dive to such moral depths uh, with this character. Well, where this movie ends is it ends in inevitability. Mm-hmm. That's the last exchange between Malcolm and um, and Caesar, which is like you know. Based on all these events, uh, this skirmish, the military is on—it's on its way, right? The human military is going to show up, and it's going to try to put Caesar and his his people, for lack of a better term, down. And you know, and and Caesar is just resigned to it because he's like, because of what Coba did, the war's already begun. It's not the war is going to start, or the war yeah. is coming. The war's already here. Yeah, and. What the master stroke of this movie and the emotional journey this movie takes you on, it has to get you to the point. And the, like, this is not easy from a, like a screenwriting perspective. It has to get us to the point as human beings <laughs> sitting there watching it that we are okay mentally and emotionally with the end of humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like, okay, the, 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 the time of man <laughs> isn't dawning. Like in Lord of the Rings, it is right. sunsetting. Because if there's any part of us as an audience member, it's like, man, fuck them apes. I would have right. If there's any part of us that's not on board with it, is like, you know, still kind of rooting for the humans. Um, we 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 can't do the next movie, and we can't uh, we can't emotionally buy into Caesar as our protagonist. Malcolm is not pr- protagonist of this movie. I don't right. even think he's a co-protagonist. I think the movie, the movie kind of, I think at times tries to play him off like he is a co-protagonist, but he's really not. Like it's the it's the progression of this trilogy where in the yes. first one it's pretty clearly Franco is yes. the lead and and Caesar is a key part of it that then it kind of explodes towards the end. In yep. this one, I think the movie's trying to kind of be like, look, it's about this ape and this human. There was that the image of the two of them like 
with their heads against each other at the end. That was like the promo still that was going around for this movie back in the day a lot. And then by the time they get to the third one, they're like, no, nah, fuck it. It's, it's Caesar's movie. <laughs> There's one well, main, <laughs> main human and it's the villain. So it's pretty yeah, clear. I, I think they're soft peddling us a little bit, right? It's right. a magic trick. It's the prestige. Yeah. It's the turn. You know, if we just if we just show up in this movie, especially after the the with after Rise, and we're like, yeah, all the humans are devils, and we're, you know, it, that'd be right. too extreme. So you have to show nuance, and yep. you have to show both sides and their fairness, so that the audience can make the decision emotionally for themselves whose side they're on. And or at I the very this, least, we realize that it's, we also realize, realize it's inevitable too. I yes, think. correct. Yes. So, because it, they could have just done it where like there's humans in it and they're all bad and blah, blah, blah. And at that point, the movie almost feels like it's preaching to you or it's condescending to you. And anytime, mm-hmm. when, anytime it feels like in real life or in movies or stories that the writer or whoever, right, that somebody is imposing their feelings and how you should feel on you. Even if it lines up with how you actually feel, you're kind of resentful towards it. Yeah. You know, because they're, they're like, they're trying to bypass your autonomy and a lot of movies do that. And that's a lot of movies. That's, that's one of the the effects of the, of the sin of telling and not showing because if I'm telling you how the character's feeling, I am in, in a way telling you how you should feel. Right. Especially yeah. if it's like the main character, because I want you to empathize with that character and relate to that character. Even if in relating to them, you're disgusted by them. I need you to build an emotional connection with your central figure and, and some of the figures in the script or the story. And if I just don't allow that emotional process to happen for you as an audience member, I just go, okay, all right. He's a grieving dad. You have, you've lost somebody in your life. So just go ahead. You're this guy, right? A lot of movies yeah. do that. They don't know, maybe know they're doing that, but they do that. And you're, you have an instant aversion to that. And you go like, who the, who the fuck are you to tell me how to feel? And subconsciously that's, we rebel against the movie. This movie is genius because it doesn't do that. It just, it takes you on this emotional journey. It tricks you into thinking that Malcolm is an actual character instead of a plot device. <laughs> and, right. and by the end of it, you're just like, fuck what, what's caesar gonna do with this ape kingdom you know like oh humanity's <laughs> humanity's done and you're not even necessarily thinking about that you're not lamenting human the loss of humanity you're like fuck there's what what's what's left here right because caesar has got quite a mess to, to clean up now caesar's, yeah, caesar. you're thinking about what's next for the apes right? yeah which, which goes against and i go this sounds so silly but we're talking about an unconscious subconscious level that goes against evolutionary survival instincts and if people don't think you're affected by like your primal instincts, I'm at no pun intended in time about Planet of the Apes. We all are. And so that's one of the great magic of movies. You know, Roger Ebert called them empathy machines is because mo- stories in, in particular, narrative in general, but movies in particular um, have this capacity to open us up to get beyond our most base programming and to see other sides and to see from others' perspectives. And the movie is capable of doing that. I think for a willing audience member to get you to see the side uh, of a post-apocalyptic <laughs> future of lab experimented on primates who are not indirectly responsible for the end of human civilization, you know, and you to get you to sympathize with them and to care more about their, so that to your point, Robert, so that when we get to that third movie, it's just like, fuck, this is Caesar's film, Right. Yeah. He is the guy. This has been about him actually the whole time. And I think that's 
that's really great. I think if I have nitpicks about the movie, and I do have a few because I am who I am, I think the Malcolm character um, at times is like a really, really smart character. And I think at times he's really dumb. Mm. And there's a, there's like this, I, I get it. I get the desperation, but I almost, I just wish it would have played a little bit different. And, and in the end, it's okay. But it always bothered. Like, like, like when he, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I was about to ask what you were. Well, it's just, it's just, there's a couple of decisions that he makes that always bothers, bothers me. And the movie tries to do its best to pr- provide some logic. But there's, I think, too, too many times in which Caesar's like, humans, leave. And he's like, okay. Oh, blah, blah. And then Caesar leaves. And then Jason <laughs> Clark goes after him. He's like, oh, but one more thing. He's it's Columbo all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, just one more uh, thing. Just one more thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. 100%. <laughs> you're like, like, especially when his <laughs> infant and uh, wife are dying. And, yeah. and they're like, you know, he's like, this my home. Like, don't come in here. And he just keeps going. It's like, leave <laughs> Caesar alone. And it's just like, I, I understand you need the fucking radio, buddy. I understand you want to listen to records and you need power, but it, it's a simple fix to me. And, and I know I, I, I get it. It's supposed to be desperation. I get it. And maybe right. it's just the way Jason Clark is playing it. Cause I'm iffy on him sometimes, but yeah, a simple explanation is why does he not explain to Caesar? Okay. Though you want, this is after Caesar has rode an army into town by horse and basically says, here's the dividing line. We don't want your cities. You can have them. We don't. We don't want war. Apes don't want war. Humans have the cities. Apes have the forest. Don't come to where you just were. We won't come here. Don't right. start nothing. There won't be nothing. That's basically exactly. what he says, right? Then of course Jason Clark just follows him right into the back of the woods. <laughs> but why doesn't he just explain to Caesar? If you want to keep the humans in the city, get them power. Because humans are going to be want to be where the electricity is. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be want to be out in the woods, you know, doing survivalist bullshit. They're going to they're right. going to want to be in relative to this apocalypse creature comforts. He never explains that to him. He never once is like he's just like, well, we need power and we're so desperate. And like, why would Caesar care? Rule of thumb: If you were trying to sell somebody something, figure out what they want. How does exactly. this this goal meet your goals right how does this project accomplish something for you and and again it wouldn't bother me so much if the character didn't do other stuff in the movie really intelligently yeah uh also once uh charlie from fringe pops off and and brings a gun when he's not supposed to mm-hmm. a couple of times i get it he's like well he's the damn guy he worked for the power co- whatever because he ends up just sitting in a truck anyways after a certain point. (laughs) See you tomorrow, asshole. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't have had a conversation with everybody before you went of like, hey, this is an uneasy alliance. I know you're bigots against apes. Uh, If you can't shove down your bigotry, don't come. Right. Like, just, it's just, and I get it. Like, there's certain things need to happen so we can have conflict. But I think there's enough already happening in this movie to incite conflict that we did, we did not need Malcolm to make a series of really stupid decisions <laughs> to get us there. That's the only thing that really bothers me about it. Yeah. To be with no, I, I mean, I, I, under, I totally get the thing with Malcolm. Like that makes a lot of sense. And that's, it's something that I noticed too, but there's like a two to three scenes in rap, pretty rapid succession where he's just like, Oh, but wait a minute. Uh, you know, kind of Maybe trailing after season. Too. 
Yeah, right? I think it's. I think it might be a pacing thing a little bit. Yeah, too. you know, maybe maybe in the original cut of the movie because this is already a pretty long film. So maybe in the original cut of the movie, maybe this was a three-hour film, you know, or plus or whatever, and those scenes have ten minutes in between them, and it wouldn't be as noticeable. And they were just like, well, it's it, it it's repetitive. We kind of get it. So, but we have to keep those scenes because there's pivotal conversations and exposition that happens. And how and do you feel about relationships? No, sorry, go ahead. That's my guess as to why it's like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, yeah, you're right. It's just like back to back to back the same scene. <laughs> Leave this monkey alone. <laughs> he wants no part of your bullshit. He really uh, doesn't. I, He's made it pretty clear. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too. It's Caesar's that, being more than gracious, right? He's being pretty oh, yeah. gracious. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when half the apes are like, we need to just blow these fuckers away. And just, yes! <laughs> and he's like, oh, hold on a second. And like, we're going to show strength. We're going to ride <laughs> all our people in there. And Gary Oldman's like, this is a lot more than 80. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, like, how, what are your thoughts on the other human characters? The Carrie Russell character, and we get Cody Smith McPhee, Gary Oldman, like I said, playing kind of a a darker, more cynical version of Jim Gordon here a little bit. The son character definitely, I, it definitely feels like there was more of him with the apes and the whatever that was cut down, way down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine. I don't because the reality is the ape stuff is so strong. I don't give a yeah. shit about these people. I really don't. <laughs> Pretty much. The movie tries. It's not just like the, and the movie's not just being like eh, like it's not. It's really trying. It's trying to. It doesn't half-ass the human beings, but the mm-hmm. ape stuff is so much stronger, and I identify so much more with them. I don't really give a shit. And I be honest mm-hmm. with you, uh, I think Carrie Russell is pretty good in this movie. Um, yeah, she's. I'm like at certain points. I'm like, why isn't she leading this group? Who the fuck is Malcolm? Why is he leading this? Yeah, that might point. just be my Jason Clark bias, where I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't always buy him as different characters. You know what I mean? Yeah, you didn't he, buy him as uh, John Connor in what is that Terminator Genesis? No. <laughs> Genesis? No, fuck no. that movie. Oh my god, that's a different franchise detour. I think you've already done it, right? I have not done it. I'm oh, dying to do it eventually because there's like me. four weird bad swings that kind of happen in a row detour beating its head against the driving wall. yeah driving 18 wheeler into the, the, the la <laughs> reservoir if you, that's the detour that they did that yeah exactly and every couple of years they give jim cameron like 50 million dollars he comes out and goes this is the true sequel to terminator <laughs> the fucker has said that four times now yeah and all the nerds in there are like jim jim K- man motherfucker he's just getting that money so he can build a new type of technology for his next avatar <laughs> yeah exactly about terminator so anyway back to this i detoured us um i think i don't think gary Oldman's very good in this uh, he doesn't have a lot to play to be fair though either he gets no. that one sort of emotional moment with the tablet when he's looking at his family who who's, he's, he's lost obviously. And then he gets like a couple speeches and he blows himself up in the name of saving the world. <laughs> and I'm like, and okay. All, yeah. Some of his blow up sequence feels more dark Knight rises than dark Knight. Yeah. Uh, it's like, this feels, feels Nolan esque here, but the weird thing for me about Gary Oldman minus tiptoes is that uh, if, folks, if you don't know that Google it, Gary Oldman tiptoes, trust me. But um, he is, he when he did Batman Begins, that was unlike anything Gary Oldman had ever done in his career. Because mm-hmm. Gary Oldman was famous. He was like the poor man's Daniel Day-Lewis. True. He's a Daniel Day-Lewis who showed up in like obscure, weird B-movies and indie movies, basically. Like he was just, 
he he was he's a B movie actor with like aspirations of prestige, and we kind of bought him as that, right? Even though his performance in Dracula, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's completely hammy, over the top, <laughs> yeah, insane at times. And obviously, he's in the professional, and that's very insane. And he's in um, the Fifth Element, and that's very insane. And he's in True Romance, and that's real insane, and probably deeply racist and culturally insensitive. <laughs> and, but he's just doing all this crazy shit. He kind of always disappeared in his roles, right? I feel like since The Dark Knight, or since Batman Begins, one or the other, he's been basically Commissioner Gordon in every movie I've ever seen him in since then. With the heavy breathing and the occasional yelling, and it has to stop here. You know, it's just like it's the same. It's like fucker, you were the guy who just would transform, and it's like this was a guy who believed so much in his ability to transform. He asked for his name to be taken off the credits of Hannibal, another movie we covered that you didn't have to cover. Thank goodness, like nobody knew it was him, so he could play Mason Verger under all these prosthetics. He did not want his name in the credit, not be, which I wouldn't want it just because the movie was Hannibal, but just because he wanted people to be. <laughs> that was totally, the real reason. He totally just said it was. believe he was this weird character. Right. And he's been Commissioner Gordon for 25 years now. And he's basically, you said yourself, he's like, well, he's Bobo Commissioner Gordon in this. And he kind of is. Yeah. So th- that's another one of like, I got maybe like three little nitpicks and it's all the human stuff. I think all the ape stuff plays exceptionally well. Yeah. I was saying earlier that this one is also way less bound by callbacks because Rise had a little bit more of that, like, you know, trying to restart this franchise. This one feels a lot more lived in. Uh, I think one of the the most obvious reference back we get is just literally they they swing back to James Franco's house from the first movie. Uh, But but it's all about I I feel like it, it all fits caesar's arc it fits the theme it it's the the uh you know the beginnings of his relationship and his compassion for humanity started with that character and he sort of sees a bit of that character in malcolm and so it's a little bit of you know it all kind of circles circles around to exactly why he has this soft spot for humanity that he's kind of had to uh, sacrifice a bit of in order to protect his people now that it's literally coming to war. I thought all of that worked really well because yes. other than Mal- Malcolm is sort of the, the Franco stand in emotionally for, for Caesar. And other than him, every, all the other human characters are there to support his arc mostly. And, uh, and Franco is really the second most important human character in this movie. And he's not even in this movie. So I, I think it's, it, yeah, it says a lot about that character. No, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that's like in in the Odyssey of Caesar, he he has to he is at the point of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. Right? Because he's very he's mortally wounded, essentially. And so he he has to travel back to his almost like his actual conception. Not that he was actually born, but because right. of the drugs that they were giving him, I think that's when he reaches in consciousness for lack of a better term, right? Or human intellect, uh, the human level of intellect is in that early footage that he's seen. Right. Right. And so, um, he almost has to be born again and that's, that's all the hero's journey sort of stuff. Absolutely. And also it's not just important for him because that, yes, that character needs to be reminded of that because it, because he's Caesar is maybe starting to lose his way. Right. Which is a great thing about the Caesar character, even more so in the next one. Right. He, I don't want to jump too far ahead for spoilers, but 
he kind of very much like a real Caesar, almost like Mac uh, Aurelius in, in uh, Gladiator, where he's like lamenting at the end of the next film. He goes into lamentation mm-hmm. of like, I couldn't give my people peace. All right. He's like, the glory, you know, it's the glory of Rome. There's no glory. Like we fought war after war after war for what, four years of peace? It's very, which again goes back to that like classical literature, Shakespearean. This ultimately is a tragedy. It's and it's ultimately not just a human tragedy. It's an ape tragedy. Mm-hmm. And um, and but yeah, he needs that moment, and he doesn't just need it. His son needs it because his son is from after the time of of humans. He does not understand he what he sees in his he sees in his father compassion, and he perceives it as weakness. Mm-hmm. Yep, which is what allows him to be seduced by Koba. Because he sees rage in Koba and misinterprets it as strength, which is the folly of young men. And so he has to come around to wisdom. And the way that that happens is he has to see, he has to essentially go back to his father's home right. and be like, no, not all humans are like this. And, they, and and it's not just about like having compassion for humanity. It's for the apes to see the best parts of humanity so that they can, the hope is that so they can, in a way, attain to the best parts of us and let go of the worst parts of us, right? Like, right. at a certain point, the subconscious hope of this story is that the, the apes can get it right. We got it wrong. We got it wrong so bad, we extincted ourselves. That's not even a term. But <laughs> it was a self-extinction. You know, Terminator 2, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Well, we've done that. We've successfully done it. The hope is... And, and that goes into that universal thing of like every generation hopes the next generation, every father hopes his son is greater than him. And in many ways, like you said, James Franco is his father, yeah. Caesar's father. And he now is a father who has a son and Caesar is reckoning with, I didn't, I didn't do better. I want my son to do better. And my son has been sucked into this conflict that is going to lead into all out war. And yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of thematic emotional complexity to this film. We could, I honestly think we could probably talk about it for like two hours. We're not going to. No, no, we're not going to. Probably could. Yeah. They're, they're, and every character's decisions are driven by that emotion. I think that's, that's the main thing too. Everybody, yeah. every, everyone's perspective is very clear. And so you understand why even the asshole, why Carver, makes the decisions that he makes. Why, when they're cuddling on the cute little baby, he's like, are you done now? Like, what are we doing here? Like he's why he's yeah, disgusted it, by them because the whole, the whole thing has yeah. been marketed as the simian flu. And so now he's like the yep. apes, it's, it's their fault. And I'm like, no, it started from the, the human drug company started made this, this medicine that has now manifested itself into a virus, but they didn't, it's not the, the apes didn't seek out to destroy humanity. Correct. It's, that's all. That's on us. Dumb. Well, you know, and and I don't, I don't want to go down this road too far because we're getting towards the end here. But yeah. we also live through and continue to live through that part of it. So that Carver character mm-hmm. feels a lot more real, doesn't it? Sure like does. Even with the even with that baseball cap, you know, <laughs> where he's like, you know, you know, yeah, it's just like, oh my god, you know, he's taking guns where he shouldn't take guns, and we told you not to bring the gun, and you you had to conceal and carry, didn't you, asshole? You know, like it's just like. All of this stuff, and it's all very real, right? It's like, yeah, that simian flu, you know, it's like, you know, the Wuhan flu, Kong flu, <laughs> flu, flu, and you're just like, oh my god. But it's, I think, what the great 
bring it bring it all around. I think with the great classics of literature and what the great tragedies going back to Grecian times and even before that to the ancient Near Eastern world, mm-hmm. what makes them so great is that they the issues that we as humanity the, the the particulars change, but the underlying core issues don't change. Right. We as human beings are deeply paranoid, fearful species. We're selfish. I'm talking about at our worst. We are right. selfish. We are fearful in our fearfulness. We will try to destroy others to preserve ourselves, and and it is mutually assured destruction. You cannot destroy others. You know, uh, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword. Right? Violence begets violence. And <clears throat> but there's also this streak in us of kind of higher reasoning, of a deeper intelligence, a spiritual intelligence that says uh, there's there's a better way. You know, there is a way of peace. There is a way of loving your neighbor. There is a way of um, nonviolence, peaceful, creative nonviolence. And it is the worst in us individually and collectively as a people is always at war with the best in us individually and collectively as a species. And we're never quite sure which one's going to win out. And there are brilliant moments of altruism and selflessness and self-sacrifice that the human race has had throughout history, either in incredible individuals or incredible people groups. Um, but it always, it always feels rare. It always feels like the assholes outnumber the saints. Mm-hmm. And, and it always sometimes feels like the assholes in us, the asshole in us outweighs the saint in us. And um, I don't want to quote uh, the new mutant. So I won't, but you got to choose which bear to feed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a franchise detail. Was you, now, you, you have done X-Men, right? I'm doing X-Men after this. I don't oh, know if I'm going to do the New Mutants, though. You have so many <laughs> aspirations, Robert. I can't keep up with them all. I know. I know. Me, neither can I. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, to your point, it's also it's it's part of Caesar's uh, kind of tragic flaw, his hubris that he says in that scene. Uh, I think at at, at uh, Franco's house, I wish I could remember the character's name offhand. Will, I think his name is, uh, where he says something like, you know, I thought that apes could, that we were, we were better than humans. Yes. I thought we could be better, you know, but I, now I realize just how much alike we really are. Yes. And, and he, that he, he sees that uh, they're kind of doomed to make the same mistakes if he, if he can't yeah. steer them in the right direction. And hence the, the responsibility, the burden in his eyes in that final shot. I just, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, just a, a couple of things I wanted to make sure we mentioned, obviously the visual effects in this thing yet and still no, no Academy award. None of these won for best visual effects, which is bullshit. Absolute um, bullshit. at very least won this, the next one, maybe it should have been a return of the King sort of thing where at least the third one gets it. Something the score by, I think it's Michael Giacchino did the score. Incredible incredible work like moving powerful tragic terrifying at times like really really next level stuff uh you know we and also i wanted to point out specifically that so much of this movie is apes doing sign language and with subtitles yeah. and you're riveted you're hanging on every single word that maurice has to say or that caesar has to say or or blue eyes or, or whoever like i yeah. The fact that he pulled that off is throughout the entire movie, like 70% of the dialogue in this movie is apes signing words to each other. By uh, the way, I, by incredible. the way, by the way, 2023 yeah. 
we got Creed 3, and that was one of the things. It's like, oh, it's a legacy reboot franchise, and they're finally incorporating sign language. I just wanted to go. I'm, I'm glad for it. Let's celebrate it. I wanted to go. Apes did it first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, I think, uh, I agree with you. I think this is one of the, certainly one of the best blockbusters of the 2010s, one of the best movies in general, I would say. And I, for me, it's probably my favorite in the franchise. And this is a franchise that includes that original film. That's so groundbreaking in so many ways. Uh, is it, what, what do you think is the legacy of this franchise? Is there anything else about this movie we haven't talked about first? And then I guess that question. Um, the last thing I would just say about it is this does what all great science fiction does going back to the original, which yeah. is, if it's just a human pop, if it's just two human rival kingdoms, so to speak, we've seen that and, and where that sort of storytelling we're familiar with because it's kind of the world that we live in, in, in some way. Um, but the moment you make it human and ape or human and alien or human and a literal other instead of a different ethnicity or nation state, not that we shouldn't tell those stories too, but the power of science fiction is that it tricks our brain. It's, it's a hack to the human brain to where if we truly literally otherize the enemy, quote unquote, and then we put you into the shoes of the enemy, the other, then, and, and make the, that the sympathetic side, the protagonist side, it immediately, it's like a parable and it mm -hmm. immediately begins to go to work on your conscience. You know, yeah. you're, 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 you're immediately like, Oh, I see too much of the ugliness of humanity. And so I think sometimes a movie like this and the next film that you're going to talk about are a little bit more capable at getting at our moral imagination than even something like a saving private Ryan is because that's a real historical event. Yes. It's fictionalized, but you know, there's that part of our brain that just sort of glazes over, right? Well, that mm -hmm. really happened, but that does, I wasn't, I wasn't a part of that. That didn't affect me. I wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, that was bad, but you know, and we do that with history, right? You hear people say that sort of stuff all the time. I mean, yeah, it was bad. Don't get me wrong. It was really bad, but none of us were even alive. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas science fiction is more speculative. These events, didn't actually happen. You can't point to an actual historical moment thus far where apes got super intelligent and took the planet back over. You can't do that. So because of that, your guard actually comes down and you can actually hear the moral of the message, I think, a little bit more clearly. So that's what I think good science fiction does. And I think this is some of the best science fiction that, uh, of mainstream, uh, you know, in film uh, so far in our century. So, uh, as far as the legacy of Planet of the Apes, I don't know because we're getting an, another one, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. It's not going to be Matt Reeves. It's going to think I'd be going to be a continuation, but it's like a huge flash forward. I don't yeah. know if we're going to get much more evolved apes so far. The poster that's available to it still kind of looks like a chimp. So I don't know if we're like, I don't know how far they're going to take it. I don't know if we're just going to circle back around because that, that is where kind of the next one kind of ends up. We have like the Nova character, you know, this, that, whatever. And you're like, well, is this, or is this like, does it back up exactly to, or a couple hundred years or maybe a thousand years before? Like we don't really know, or, you know, but you can kind of, it kind of dark Knight rises in a little bit where it's like, well, mm -hmm. you can kind of see where it would continue. <laughs> um, 
So I don't know, because what's so weird is I would say before this trilogy, I would have said the legacy of the movie is going to be Charlton Heston saying, get your hands off me, you damn dirty apes. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that has any meaning past us. Right. Because it's another one of those things that it was the soup that we were swimming in. Again, it was osmosis. We inherited We saw parodies of it. We saw the Simpsons writers who grew up with that stuff in the 60s who were then in their 20s and 30s when they were writing for the Simpsons. And shows like that were doing parodies of it. And then we were absorbing it as eight-year-olds or I knew that. I knew that Spaceballs gag with Planet of the Apes before, way before I ever saw anything of There's Planet of the Apes. There's another one, right? Yeah, right? We saw it parodied. Because it was pop culture. It's definitely not right. pop culture anymore. And and yeah, you 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 did it. You 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 blew it up, right? Like the the twist of he's been on Earth the whole time. Yep. He's not on some weird planet. Spoilers. Yeah. He's yeah, he's on <laughs> Earth. Um and so it's like it goes down as like one of the great movie twists. Mm-hmm. Um that would probably be it. You would think that, I mean, this one grossed almost a billion dollars, seven hundred million worldwide. I rise didn't do that good. I don't think War did as good as this one did. Yeah, I know this is still the highest in the franchise, which I so, you know I which is really so. weird because why did they show like it was popular, it was successful, it was rated highly, it's a good movie, and less people showed up for the third one. That's yeah, weird. That is weird. But um, I don't know if these what's really we- Circus should have got an Academy Award for this role. I agree. Special effects should have been rewarded. Matt Reeves should have been nominated. This thing was just kind of never accepted by film Twitter and film culture and the Letterboxd Hive. And at least least if it was, I I don't remember it being. It just kind of, it never, film bros didn't really embrace it. It was like, I know it's weird. It has everything you need for that, for that to happen, to get the same kind of praise that like, like we were saying, the dark Knight received uh, a few years earlier. So it's like, it's, it, it, it was a huge hit and was generally well liked, and yet it still feels sort of undervalued somehow. And you're like, yes, I don't, yes, I don't, I don't weird. understand exactly what that disconnect is about. And it's weird to articulate because you can't be like, well, you know, the movie kind of flopped, but it's in retrospect, it's really good. It didn't. It almost yeah. grossed a billion dollars. Yeah. So you would you would think honestly you would think, and they're making another one. So you would think this this at least this part of the trilogy has elevated the idea of play of the apes in the minds of the movie going public if not the mm-hmm. general public and i don't think that's true i think a lot of people watched it and a lot of people were like yeah it's a really good movie and that was it, it and they moved on beyond that and they were done and they were they're gone yeah so i don't know i don't know how to answer that for you I and mean, like I, later i, I think no like answer. a few weeks later guardians of the galaxy came out and everybody was like oh well psh, that's our that's where cinema is headed and i was like well, uh, you, you okay, well I guess. okay let me turn it around on you. Yeah. Do you think that's what it was? Do you just think that Guardians took all the oxygen out of the room? It could be that. It could be this is maybe this is this has a, a sort of quiet reflection to it that that's the a lot point. of the the whiz yep. bang audience members were like, eh, it's kind of slow. Eh. It is slow. I, it lost me in the middle kind of thing. Yeah. It's and not it, it's, a feel good action no. movie. It's not a, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's not whiz bang, ha ha. There, there there's there's a f- very few moments of levity. It is, but, and they are funny, but it is more or less a very dour reflection on the worst impulses of the human race and the end of human civilization. So that you're right. That's probably a hard sell. <laughs> but to tonally like, this yeah. tonally, the Batman is not 
that dissimilar from this no, either. Like we no. were saying, like you, that's a, that's a, a hell of a double feature. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and the Batman. Like this is what happens when you give Matt Reeves IP and you say, do your thing, reinvent it at your will. This is what he comes up with. And I feel like those two feel very much of a piece. And the Batman was also, you know, critically beloved and all this other stuff. Uh, obviously everything's divisive on film Twitter. So, you know, your mileage may vary with that. that but it's a hellscape. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. Um, you can find uh, us both on there, by the way. Yeah, I didn't say I'm not contributing. I'm yeah, exactly. Uh, I would just say if you're a fan of Crooked Table as I am and you're a fan of Robert as I am, then my suggestion to you would be if you're going to follow his advice and do a double bill, you up your SSRI before you do so. Yes. You know, just make sure that you talk to your doctor and go, go ahead and take that vibrant and go ahead and put it up about five milligrams because I'm going to watch <laughs> two Matt Reeve movies, three hours apiece back to back. I'm going to watch six hours of humanity is a, a, a waste. Uh, but but here's the ultimate thing. Is he, this is where he's also kind of unconventional is there's still there's still hope. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, like, I, I know what people are saying about the Batman and that stadium scene. It almost feels like a completely different movie. And it feels maybe more comic booky and kind of out of a line. And maybe it's 20 minutes too long, blah, blah, blah. But boy, if you don't have that, whew, that's the most hopeful part of it. That's the most triumphant, heroic part of it. That's because he's a Batman in training. That's the only mm -hmm. time you ever really see Batman as we idolize him. The good, yeah. You know, we've gotten so many iterations of the Joker beat my Robin to death with a crowbar and I'm sad. We like, we've now seen dark Knight returns influence through so many Batmans. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of nice to see him rescue some people from a bomb, right. <laughs> you know, a flood. <laughs> it was just really nice to see him stop the Riddler and capture and help the mayor or the premier to be to safety. You know, that was just sort of nice. And I think there are those moments in this film as well. And it is in those like kind of final moments with Malcolm and, and, and Caesar, that there is a, there, there is a, there is even a catharsis in that final set piece of the very dark night, like fight in the construction mm -hmm. <laughs> area between, you know, if Caesar had said, you know, what did you think? Everybody was as ugly <laughs> as you, right? Like if he had said that, you're alone, Koba. You know, I would have been like, yeah, it, it, it feels very akin to it. So it's not that this movie doesn't have set pieces. It does. It right. has action yeah. set pieces. It has battles and tanks and horses and guns and explosions and all, all that stuff. So, but yeah, it is, it, it is a much more, I forgot the guardians came around this time. So yeah, it's yeah. a much more meditative, <laughs> pensive, thoughtful, self-reflective sermon than it is a whiz bang, you know, I don't know, shot of Red Bull and vodka, which is what <laughs> Guardians is. So you're, you're right, Robert. Look at you. You're yeah. so smart. Thank you. No, so I guess what we're saying is if you're one of those people that saw the Batman last year and loved it like we did, and are like, where's this Matt Reeves guy been hiding? He's been hiding in these apes movies that you all forgot about. <laughs> like, go back and saw. watch them. We know you saw them. <laughs> the box office doesn't lie. You the saw number them. of people that saw, the percentage of people that saw this in theaters and then have not thought about it since then has got to be astronomical. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. do you have any sort of ranking of these, of this franchise, or at least where does this one go for you? I know it's nine movies, so I, I don't even know if you've it. seen Honestly, it. I haven't seen all of the old timey ones. I would look, go back and check them out. Cause they're interesting. If nothing else, I think some of the decisions they make 
from one to the to the next. Every time they're like writing themselves into a corner, and they're like, "All right, shit, how do we how do we figure out how to how to do this?" Uh, an approach to filmmaking that doesn't happen in today's shared universe. Everything's you know everything's leading up to a team up film down the uh, down the line kind of thing. Uh, so they're they're fun to watch from that perspective. But I'm assuming this is your favorite of the bunch. Yes, it's certainly yeah. my favorite of this trilogy. I think it's the strongest one. Um, is would you would you put Roddy this over Mc- the original? Yes, yeah, yeah. I would. Roddy yeah, McDowell is in a bunch of them, right? Roddy McDowell uh, is in all but one, but only because the character is barely in it and i think there was a scheduling conflict so they had another actor put on the cornelius makeup for like one brief scene uh i think in beneath it's just a second film so maybe if i do a a roddy mcdowell retrospective there you go done fright night uh maybe if i do a roddy mcdowell retrospective the only thing that's left is these apes movies well you can 100 percent. there's five of those original apes movies you can 100 percent do a ranking episode on those at some point if you ever see See fit without having to rewatch 2001, yeah, without yeah, having yeah. To, to rope these in there as well. Because, you know, oh, I'm sure there's mutual listeners between our two shows. I'm sure <laughs> somebody's gonna be like, Yeah, Robert's right, do it. And then I'm gonna feel obligated, <laughs> and then I'm gonna be like, Yeah, I'll put it on the list, and I'll, I'll never ever be able to retire no, you'll, from you. You'll, you'll get a deposit <laughs> from Crooked Table Productions, and I'll be like, Sponsoring an episode, please. <laughs> Planet are, of the Apes. Those are currently suspended until further notice. Really? So, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I've do, there were so many people that wanted me to do so many movies, which is a great problem to have. Yeah. It's like I, I don't have enough time to be able to give everybody the best that I can, and I, I just want to focus on the main series and the Patreon mm-hmm. uh, because I'm doing a bunch of different stuff over there. Um, and so it's like I just I, something had to give. And it was just like they kept well, piling up. And I was just like, I'm never, I'm never going to get out from underneath <laughs> this mountain of people. And some of those people, not naming any names, I think were legitimately trying to kill me. I think they were just <laughs> like, hey, man, for like 25 bucks a pop, send this guy five movies. Here's five. Here's 10. Here's 15. Here's 20. So I like got through them and I got to a point. I've got one more to do and it's going to be real wild. Oh, boy. And then that's then it's it's not done forever, but it's gonna be done for a while. So what what you do is you direct all those people to the Patreon and be like, I will get to it on Patreon eventually. So sign up now so you don't miss it. And then you know you get to it. Whenever you get to it, you're getting that person's that person's <laughs> money every single month. Building, 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 building. That's what I recommend. That sounds. I'll like do the whatever you tell me to do, but you gotta get on the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I can't break promises of how quick I'll get to it. But yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're not a supporter of the Binge Movies Patreon, or for that matter, the Crooked Table Patreon, do you have one? I think you do, right? I have one that I'm not doing much with yet, and it's been okay. constantly on the back burner. A lot of a uh, lot of COVID and strep throat oh, yeah. and bullshit like that around my house. Yeah. So every time I'm like, extra time, I'll get to it. Not so much. Time doesn't Yeah, happen. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. But support uh, Crooked Table any way that you can. And if you're not already supporting, you're like, I really want this Planet of the Apes. Become a become a assistant manager over at Patreon. There you go. And at that level or higher, and then I will possibly entertain the idea for patrons only. So there that, you go. That's where, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, but love and, it. And then the, th- the thing is, if you put the request in and then you cancel three months later, I ain't doing it. So you gotta <laughs> stick with it. And no refunds. 
No refunds. <laughs> All sales are final. <laughs> All sales are final, buddy. Yeah, no exactly. promises, no guarantee. Cards subject to change, kid. Jason, this was a blast. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. That's the other thing. The titles get like really long-winded, and they're all like blank of the Planet of the Apes, which is like, yeah. couldn't have this have been Dawn of the Apes? We know. How many Apes movies are there? We get it. Um, get IP in there, buddy. Gotta get exactly. There. Like, especially nowadays, you got to get that... Uh, Get that, get that word, uh, the keyword search going for Planet That's of right. the Apes. Um, but tell people where they can find you on social media. You already mentioned the Patreon, so that's one. Yeah, patreon.com slash binge movies. On Twitter, as long as it lists, uh, or as long as it lasts, at binge movies. On Instagram, which is a relatively new account, so we're still trying to grow that. At binge movies lives. Uh, you can find the podcast uh, on all major podcast platforms. Just search for binge movies. If 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 uh, the ringer who's trying to steal my SEO gets in the way, just search for binge movies rankings and reviews. We'll get you there a little quicker. And uh, yeah, leave us a five star review if you could, um, and uh, be greatly appreciated. And if you've not left my man Robert a five star review, please do so. He's uh, uh, not just a good podcaster; he's a really great guy. Uh, so. Uh, he deserves uh, some support, and <clears throat> he's a man after my own heart, which just means he's willing to bite off more than he could ever possibly chew. When it comes to <laughs> yep, very true, very true. Yeah, and, and you know, we'll we'll be talking on your show relatively soon. We have some stuff in the works, so people want to hear more of us talking movies. Definitely, uh, definitely keep an eye on binge movies. By the time there's this a lot goes, of Robert, there's a lot of Robert in the archives. There's a the, lot of yeah, Robert in the archives. So by the time this drops. There's probably at least two more Roberts in the in exactly. the Robert Yanez Juniors out there on binge movies. So if you like RYJ, as I know you do because you're listening to this, you got to go back into the back catalog of binge movies because there's I feel like you've been on a half a dozen times, maybe more. So <laughs> I don't know if it's been that many yet, but I mean it's it's probably approaching that with the with, especially with what we have in the in the works. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's going to be getting there very soon. But yeah, so yeah. this was a blast. We'll definitely have you back on here or close watch uh, sooner rather than later, my friend. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. Big thanks to Jason from Binge Movies for coming on to discuss 2014's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, a film that I think is somehow underrated even though it was a huge block post like jason and i said it was a big hit everybody loved it at the time came out did great business kind of forgotten over the last 10 years or so which is a little unfortunate but hopefully you know jason and i and our combined podcasting powers and kingdom of the planet of the apes coming out next year will will turn the uh people's opinions and people's eyes back around on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. But I want to know, what was your experience with this movie? When did you first see it? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter, at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram, via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode with the finale of our Planet of the Apes mega series and this trilogy, of course, War for the Planet of the Apes. But until then, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs>